Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler, filling in for Greg Store. So, Lydia, we did it. All right. <laughs> the court released its final opinions today, Friday, June 30th. And in true Supreme Court fashion, those included some of the biggest rulings. So let's get started. Let's start off with Moore versus Harper, which feels like it was decided ages ago, but actually came down just last Tuesday. Only Tuesday? Mm. Oh, wow. It does feel like it was a long time ago. In Moore versus Harper, a 6-3 to three court rejected a Republican-led effort to bar state courts from being able to review rules for federal elections and congressional voter maps adopted by state legislatures. Yeah, that was one where they were really pushing a legal theory uh, that Democrats and progressives um, were calling extreme, right? Right. So they rejected what's known as the Independent State Legislature Theory, or ISL Theory, which is this idea that the Elections Clause of the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures almost exclusive authority to set rules for federal elections. And a lot of voting rights advocates were worried that the court was going to go the other way than it actually did, and that it could have really big implications for the 2024 election. But only two justices, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, backed that theory. Justice Alito dissented too, but only in a portion of the dissent that said that the court shouldn't have decided the case at all. Right. Beyond the potentially major implications of the case, um, it was actually procedurally extraordinary. Yeah. So this one came out of the North Carolina Supreme Court, where a Democratic majority of justices said that the state's constitution prohibits partisan gerrymandering, and it required the legislature to adopt maps that would be more favorable to Democrats. But North Carolina is a state that elects its Supreme Court justices. So after the election, Republicans took over majority. And the new bench moved quickly to rehear the case, even though the Supreme Court had already heard oral arguments. And ultimately, it reversed course. But the U.S. Supreme Court went ahead and decided the dispute anyway. I'm going to take a cue from Chief Justice Roberts, who said while reading the ruling from the bench that the reasons for why the court decided to hear the case aren't susceptible to, quote, an oral presentation. So listeners can read those arguments for themselves. But notably, there are a lot of concerns that if the justices didn't decide the case now, it would create havoc for the upcoming 2024 election. Notably, this theory was at the heart of many of the fraud claims that were made by former President Trump and his allies in the 2020 election. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the decision came from Chief Justice John Roberts and that he was joined not only by Justice Brett Kavanaugh, but also Amy Coney Barrett. That's right. And so there was a period of time where we really weren't seeing a lot of ideologically split 6-3 rulings. But um, yeah, that changed. That changed in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, especially on Thursday uh, when the court gave us its ruling on affirmative action. Uh, Kimberly, remind our listeners what happened there. So in another decision written by Chief Justice Roberts, the court backed what it called a colorblind reading of the Constitution and particularly the Equal Protection Clause. The majority said that the use of race is so dangerous that government actors can rarely use it without running afoul of the Constitution. Now, Lydia, I was in the courtroom when these cases were being read, and it was really remarkable. After Chief Justice Roberts read uh, the court's decision from the bench, 
Justice Thomas uh, decided to speak and give his reasons why he concurred with the court's decision. Oh, that's pretty rare, right, for a justice to read a concurrence from the bench? You don't see that happen very often. Yeah, it's pretty rare. It's not unheard of. I think the last time I remember was in 2015 when four justices, including Justice Scalia, read um, their decisions from the bench. His was a concurrence, and then two dissenters read. In the affirmative action cases, we only had three justices, Thanks for small favors. Justice Sotomayor delivered a blistering dissent from the bench. I was wondering if Justice Jackson was also going to speak, but she did not. But she seemed visibly upset in the courtroom during the 45 minutes or so that it took the justices to um, explain these cases. And, you know, while some of the other justices were looking around at around the bench and around the people in the courtroom, Justice Jackson just stared straight ahead. She was very stoic, and her eyes were just fixed on the back of the courtroom. So, Yeah, but uh, the court didn't explicitly overrule Grutter here, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Well, I'm, So the majority didn't say it was overturning that 2003 decision that had reaffirmed the right of universities to consider race in a limited way um, when admitting students. But Justice Clarence Thomas said in his concurrence that it was overturned for all intents and purposes. Mm. It's not totally clear to me why this isn't an outright overruling, but it may be because the court said that admissions officers may still be able to consider race when it's brought up by the applicant in something like an essay uh, explaining their background and their personal circumstances. And this was a point made by Justice Jackson during oral arguments. So I want to know, based on how your rule would likely play out in scenarios like that, why excluding consideration of race in a situation in which the person is not saying that his race is something that has uh, impacted him in a negative way. He just wants to have it honored, just like the other person has their personal background family story honored. Why is telling him no not an equal protection violation? So, Lydia, you wrote yesterday about Justice Thomas's concurrence. What stood out to you in that one? Yeah, so Justice Thomas really went after Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson's dissent, um, and the two really sparred back and forth in their writings over the meaning of race and its impact on people. I mean, um, Thomas accused Justice Jackson of having a, quote, race-infused worldview um, that, quote, falls flat at each step. And then Jackson fired back at Thomas, um, saying that his um, opinion demonstrates an obsession with race consciousness that far outstrips uh, what she and the University of North Carolina's uh, holistic understanding of race, which is that it can be a factor that affects applicants' unique life experiences. That sounds intense. Well, at least for the Supreme Court. Uh, I know you chatted with some folks yesterday about that. What was their reaction uh, to these two opinions? Yeah, so people had a lot of feelings about this yesterday. Uh, One legal scholar I spoke with said that Thomas's concurrence uh, reads like Thomas is telling Jackson uh, he's an elder statesman and that she's an errant daughter who doesn't know as much as he does. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, if you think about it, this is the first time in history that there have been two black justices on the court serving together. Um, and legal scholars were saying that there might be some generational um, as well as gender dynamics at play here. Um, so Justice Thomas, for a long time, has been the sole authoritative voice on race. And that's really changed with Justice Jackson joining the bench, you know, um, and she's not only another voice, uh, but she's also disagreeing with him. Right. So you mentioned something yesterday about there being something ironic about that. Explain. That's right. Uh, legal scholars that I spoke with um, said that these opinions really highlight the breadth of diversity of opinions within the black community um, and that that's happening in a case that actually limits diversity. Right. I thought that that dynamic between Thomas and Jackson was really interesting. And I continue to think that the dynamic between Thomas and Sotomayor on this issue is really um, something given that they are both sort of went to elite institutions during a time when affirmative action was going strong, and they both have come out with such drastic views. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think Thomas has, you know, long said that he has found it stigmatizing Mm. the use of affirmative action, you know, feeling like he didn't like feeling like he was at Yale only because of the color of his skin. You know, well, Sotomayor has said, you know, that she doesn't think that the school would have looked at applicants like herself. All right, Lydia. So let's jump to what the court decided today. We finally got a ruling on Biden's student loan relief plan and student borrowers like me, sadly, didn't get the news that they were hoping for. Nope. The court struck down President Biden's plan in another 6-3 decision uh, from Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, So the court's majority said that the administration didn't have the authority under a law known as the HEROES Act to issue such a sweeping and expansive debt relief program. The HEROES Act, that's an awesome name for legislation. Can you remind us what it's meant to do? Does it create superheroes? Oh, I wish. Um, so, So the HEROES Act was actually passed by Congress in 2001 to help active duty military after the 9 terrorist attacks. What the law does is it gives the education secretary the power to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provisions applicable to the student financial assistance programs when there's a war or, say, a military operation. And then Congress expanded that authority in 2003 to include national emergencies. So that's why it was invoked here in relation to COVID. But uh, Chief Justice John Roberts said the Biden administration kind of overread their authority in this law and that they were seizing the power of the legislature by trying to cancel so much student loan debt. Right. And it was Justice Kagan's turn to read from her dissent uh, in this case. And she went after the majority for using what she called the, quote, so-called major questions doctrine. The conservative majority has been increasingly using the major questions doctrine, including last term when it struck down environmental laws aimed at reigning in climate change and one of the Biden administration's vaccine mandates. Kagan here said that it was the majority who was taking the power for itself. She chided the conservative justices for being faint-hearted textualists and using what she called a judicially manufactured major questions sword to strike down policies that they don't like. And she said that the court was increasingly taking for itself the power to decide controversial issues that should really be left up to the political branches. All right. But there were two student loan cases, right, Lydia? What happened to the other one that was brought by two student loan borrowers? That's right. So the court unanimously rejected that one. Womp womp. 
Um, the court said that those borrowers uh, hadn't established any injury that they would suffer from not having their loans forgiven. And I'm really not surprised here. You know, the whole argument that they had was based on the fact that the Biden administration didn't go through the proper notice and public comment rulemaking requirements. And because they didn't do that, these borrowers said that they didn't get a chance to fight for greater debt relief that would have like included them. Um, and at oral arguments, you know, Justice Thomas didn't seem to be buying that as a valid injury. So mm. you lost Justice Thomas. But oddly enough, they lost their case, but they really won their case. They really won. You know, well, the states won. So they won what they wanted, which is no debt relief for anyone. If I can't have it, no one can. I was in the courtroom for these hand downs as well, and they lasted about 55 minutes, and it was the most expensive 55 minutes of my life. Yeah, we were all sitting um, with, you know, clicking in the office, refresh, refresh, refresh. So I'm going to have to send them my bill for a carpal tunnel. (laughs) So Kimberly, we should probably talk about the other big decisions that we got today. Uh, What else happened? Right. So we also got 303 Creative, which is the latest clash between LGBTQ rights and religious freedom. This was a similar dispute to a case heard a couple of terms ago called Masterpiece Cake Shop. There, a Colorado baker didn't want to make a cake for same-sex weddings. In 303 Creative, we are nixing the baker and adding a website designer who doesn't want to make custom websites for same-sex couples. The difference in the cases is that while Masterpiece Cake Shop was explicitly about religious freedom, this case, 303 Creative, was framed in terms of speech. And the majority said that Colorado couldn't compel the website designer to make speech that she disagreed with. And unlike uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, the court kind of you know, directly answered the question in this case in a way that they didn't in that previous case, right? That's true. So in in doing so, Justice Gorsuch emphasized that free speech protects not just popular speech, but also disfavored and even harmful speech. He hearkened to a case the justices decided a couple of days ago called Counterman versus Colorado, in which uh, the court set a pretty high bar for when states can prosecute people for threatening speech. In that case, it was a stalker. So he said, look, you know, the First Amendment protects really almost everything. And this was a this was another one, too, where we got a dissent from Justice Sotomayor. Right. And she did she read that one from the bench as well? She did. And she really rebuked the court. She said that the court's ruling strikes at the very existence of LGBTQ people and their ability to engage in public life, just like every other American. And she also said there's really no distinction between what the website designer is doing here and an earlier case uh, where the court rejected a a restaurant's uh, religious freedom claims from serving black customers in the same way that they serve white customers. So she said there really wasn't a principal distinction uh, to be made here. So... And if that wasn't enough, we got orders this afternoon as well. Uh, The court added more cases to its term, um, to next term, right? Uh, So I know we got something kind of big. Was it a gun rights case? That's right. So we did get a handful of cases, some immigration cases, um, some cases about acquitted uh, conduct. The biggest one is probably the one that you were hinting at, U.S. versus Rahini. This is a Second Amendment case that asks whether or not the restrictions on gun ownership by those who have domestic violence restraining orders is constitutional. All right, Lydia, that was a lot. It really was. I'm tired. What about you? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to go home and start the uh, start the weekend. Same. 
Uh, the justices will be starting their weekend, which not only is a long weekend for the 4th of July holiday, but lasts until October. Um, yay on them. Lucky. <laughs> until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules and you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.